Uh, If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 12. We are going to look at a very familiar passage, very familiar story. John chapter 12. And I'm going to be reading verses 12 through 26. And I'll be reading out of the NIV. John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a donkey and he sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, there were some Greeks uh, among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies... It produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, that is our simple yet profound request. We want to see Jesus. That's our prayer for our lives. That's the prayer for our families. That is the prayer for our community. That's, I'm positive, the prayer of this church for the city of Ventura. That's the the request that we have for the globe, that we would see Jesus. And specifically, that we would see Jesus for who he is. Not whatever we expect or some version of Jesus that we want him to be, but Jesus, the real Jesus, the crucified and risen and ascended and soon returning Jesus Christ. Open our eyes and our hearts, Holy Spirit, to see him, to behold, and through beholding, be transformed. Meet us now in this time in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Okay, well, today is Palm Sunday, and it's the day on the Christian church calendar where men and women and children across the globe, throughout the generations, gather to uh, celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 
setting in motion the events of what is called the Holy Week or the Passion Week, leading right up to the cross on Friday, and then the big celebration of the empty tomb on Sunday. And typically, uh, this is a day where palm branches are waved as symbols of Jesus' triumph. I joked with first service uh, that you guys had palms for Palm Sunday, but it turns out you always have palms. Being a church on the coast is like, I guess. Um, But the the palms would be, you know, waved as a symbol of Jesus' triumph because historically palm branches were used to celebrate victory as you know, a conquering army would, you know, sort of proudly ride back into their town. They would be greeted by the cheers and the palms being waved in their city. But there's actually another tradition involving the palm branches that churches throughout the world and throughout the generations have continued to participate in. And it's linked, surprisingly, to another day on the church calendar called Ash Wednesday. And the tradition goes that the palm branches aren't just waved on Palm Sunday, but that very day or the very next day, that Monday, they are stored, collected, stored, dried for, I don't know, 10 months or so. And then they're incinerated in order to create the ashes, the very ashes that are administered on Ash Wednesday. Now think about this, because the progression is very interesting, and in a lot of ways, it's very symbolic. From palms to ashes. Last year's greatest hopes of triumph reduced to dust. And as if that is not enough, those ashes, the the physical remnants of our dreams, are quite literally rubbed in our face. In the symbol of a crucifixion. We come out to greet Jesus, waving the symbol of life and victory. We're soon greeted with the symbol of death. Now here in John, shouts of praise are almost immediately followed by a conversation about dying and being pressed into the ground. It's actually sort of jolting as you're reading through it. And as you're reading through this, and I can only imagine being present at this time, it's like, Jesus, what on earth are you talking about? Like, that was cryptic. You lose your life to gain it, give it up to get it back. What are you talking about, Jesus? And what's all this death talk? We are here because you bring life. You're like the life giver guy. That's your reputation. And now you're talking about death. No, no, no. Jesus, we are here for your life, your freedom, and your joy. You must have gotten this all wrong. (laughs) Like the crowds here in John, we come to Jesus with who we anticipate him to be and all the great things that we expect him to do in our lives. But then our expectations are leveled as well. And what I hope that we will see today is that this is actually for our good. And this is actually for our true and lasting joy. That it is when our greatest expectations are brought to nothing. It then opens us up to the possibilities of resurrection. Today, I want you to see today as necessary preparation for the celebrations to come this week. It is a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. And I'm willing to lead us through this. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at expectations concerning a few things today in this passage. Expectations first concerning the appearance of Jesus, how we expect Jesus to appear. Uh, Expectations regarding the timing of Jesus, when we expect Jesus to move. And lastly, the way of Jesus, the way that we expect Jesus to do his thing. So let's begin with the appearance of Jesus. Now John tells us that on the week of Passover, large crowds of people had gathered, both Jews and Greeks, meaning those who within Israel and from neighboring countries and areas. And there's a lot of people in Jerusalem. In fact, a first century Jewish historian named Josephus records that at one time in the first century, sometime around this time, that there were over 2.5 million people gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. So we don't know the exact size of the crowd, but it is not a stretch to say it's a big crowd. And we know that it's a big crowd because as the Pharisees look on, they're like, oh gosh, it's all over. The whole world, they say, is going after this guy. It's done. And as they're there, they're there to hear and see this Jesus, a man who has been rumored to have just raised a person from the dead. And this miracle worker, resurrecting uh, figure is now coming into town. In fact, this seems to be what is fueling their expectations of Jesus. Because think about it. If this Jesus can raise a dead man back to life, if he can literally deliver someone from the grips of the grave, well, surely this is the person that fits the job description to deliver the nation out of the grips of Rome. And the timing couldn't be better because this is like a critical mass of Jews being present who could take up arms and drive out the Roman armies. This moment is ripe for a revolution. And so the crowds come out to greet him. And they're waving their palm branches. And this was a very intentional thing to do. This isn't just random things that they found on the roadside and picked up and started to wave. You, you, don't, you don't realize how difficult it is to gather, well, maybe not here, but elsewhere in the country, you don't realize how difficult it is to gather palm branches for Palm Sunday. And you don't realize how high up off the ground most palm branches really are. You always have palm branches until you really need palm branches. This is a very intentional thing. And the palm branch meant something for Israel. In fact, it was a sort of national symbol. Because two centuries earlier, when Israel had won full political independence through the leadership of a man named Simon the Maccabee, who was also known as the Hammer, which, by the way, is like fueling their expectations. Simon the Hammer, Jesus, he's going to be like the big hammer. He and his armies were greeted with music and the waving of the palm branches. And so it became this symbol where Jewish insurgents actually began to forge these coins during the first and second revolt against Rome with the palm branch, and it became a symbol of rebellion and hope. Like a subversive symbol that we are taking on the man. The palm branch was sort of like their their mocking jay. <laughs> and to wave the palm branch was sort of like their three-finger salute. 
I can't whistle this morning. Give me a whistle. Give me the, give me the, the give me the Mockingjay whistle. Yeah, okay, pretty good. <laughs> to be honest, first service was better, but whatever. <laughs> and to the crowds, they're expecting, they're like, there it is, I heard it. Um, they're expecting their Katniss from District 12, right? And the timpanis are going like, bum, 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 and the cra- there's just a buzz, and everyone's ready, and there's excitement, and there's cheering, and there's a lot of people. They're, they're at, the, at this place called the Golden Gates, so it's just already very regal. It's very ripe for this, like, triumphal moment. So picture this. Then enters Jesus on a donkey. And not just a donkey, a donkey's colt. This is, this is like a, this is the kind of animal you find in a petting zoo. This is the kind of animal that you literally don't mind standing next to your three-year-old <laughs> and letting them reach out their hands with the little 25-cent pebbles there or whatever to, to eat from. This is the animal that Jesus is riding in on. So small that Jesus would have likely had to lift his legs so that they didn't drag on the ground. Could you imagine this moment? Like, that's, that's him? That's the one we've been waiting thousands of years for? How embarrassing. How, like, disappointing. The crowd goes out to meet a conquering king on a war horse. They meet a very different kind of king, a humble king on a donkey. And they're there singing prophetic psalms like Psalm 118. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. But Jesus then appears like the king that is prophesied by Zechariah, a humble king mounted on a donkey. What's happening here? On the one hand, he is letting their expectations die. Like that feeling of them sort of dying inside, like, oh my gosh, we've gotten this wrong. Is Jesus allowing their expectations to die in this moment? But on the other hand, he's doing something else. He's raising something new. He's communicating something very intentional. Because as Zechariah prophesied, this is not a king who rides in on a chariot and a war horse, but instead this is the king that will cut off the war horse from Jerusalem. The king who comes to break the bow and to usher in peace for the nations. Jesus did not come in pomp and power to usher in a holy war. Jesus came in humility and sacrifice to begin what is known as the Holy Week. No sword, no shield, Just flesh and blood, ready to be torn. And as much as this was the Messiah that the scriptures had anticipated, this is nothing, looks nothing like what the people had expected. I'm reminded of a scene toward the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And, you know, they're in the search for this thing called the Holy Grail, the cup. And after this treacherous journey, they come to this portion of a cave where there's a number of cups, and the keeper of the cup, like one of the knights of the 
Templar or whatever, says, choose wisely because the right cup leads to eternal life and the wrong cup, well, that leads to death. And one guy finds out the really hard way that it was not the cup that was fit for the king, but it was the humble cup of a carpenter. And what that illustrates and what we see here in John chapter 12 is that you can safely assume that your initial expectations about Jesus are likely going to be wrong. You can just safely assume that what comes to mind about Jesus is going to need to be altered and conformed to the true Jesus. Now, the second thing we see here is the timing of Jesus, the timing of Jesus. The people's songs and shouts not only reveal how they expect Jesus to appear, but really when they expect Jesus to act. As one commentator pointed out, the waving of the palms represented the people's expectation of eminent liberation. In other words, immediate freedom. We're all here, Jesus. The time is right. Jesus, we've got all the pieces in place. You just say the word, and all our problems go away. It's go time. It's go time. In fact, the song that they choose to to sing is very telling. Verse 13, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now that word Hosanna, we're probably familiar with that. But what does it mean? Hosanna is actually a compound word. It, It combines two words together. And it means give salvation now. Give victory now. This isn't just a song, Jesus deliver us. It's a song of expectation. Jesus, deliver us now. Sound familiar? I think that this is where where we begin to see ourselves and hear ourselves in this crown. For many of us, we're waiting for God to do something. I think it's safe to assume that every single one of us in this room is waiting for God to do something in our lives. For some of us, We're praying that God would save a loved one. We've been praying and nudging and seeking God to save that person for maybe days or months or years or maybe even decades. Jesus, save now. Maybe you've been asking God to to repair your broken marriage. Maybe you're in that painful, agonizing season of trying to conceive. Lord, when? Maybe you're waiting to meet that special somebody. Maybe you're desperate for healing in your body. Maybe you're in this moment, you're just pleading with God for him to set you free from some addiction that you just keep running back into. Hosanna, Hosanna, Jesus, I've been waiting so long. Give victory now. But you see, the Bible reveals to us an eternal God, one who is patient and who is wise. The scripture tells us that to the Lord, thousands of years is like a day. 
generations and generations is like a drop in the bucket to God. You read through the scriptures and he allows long periods of time to pass between making a promise and fulfilling a promise. I think about the life of Abraham and Sarah. 25 years. We're not getting any younger here. God, in fact, will allow thousands of years to pass between promises and their fulfillment. We linger in one of those promises of Christ's return right now. And there's often this tension that while God is working patiently, humanity is rushing anxiously. And the question is, who's going to budge? Who's going to conform to the other one's timetable? And this creates quite a dilemma for us people, especially 21st century Christians, because we are not used to waiting. We hate waiting. Think about a bulk of, of the technology that we utilize on an everyday basis has been designed distinctly to eliminate waiting for us. Waiting is an enemy to be defeated. Waiting is something that we feel is opposing us, coming against our lives, coming against our joy. Why would you tell me to wait? I think that this is why at times we think that God must not be for us. Where are you, God? Why are you not answering? Why are you not coming through? Meanwhile, he's asking us to wait. Our society continues to condition us for immediate results and instant gratification. Why would you wait if you can get it right now? That's silly. Waiting's for suckers. Have it now. That's why many of us turn to sin. Because of that sensation of immediate relief. We know that it's not best. No one intentionally sins saying this is the greater thing. We all know it's settling. But we convince ourselves that we can't live without that immediate fix, that immediate result. Meanwhile, God continues to work, but again, on his timetable. And while this may seem unnecessary, it may even at times seem like God is just being stubborn, like he could move, he could do something right now, it just seems like he's dragging his feet. Is he trying to teach me a lesson? Is God just putting me in my place? Is he like, well, I'm in control of the timetables. You will just wait. What's the Lord doing? In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, we're told this. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every time that I've ever read that verse, I've read it thinking it means exactly what it sounds like it means. <laughs> that when we need help, if we come to God, we're going to find the grace and the help that we need. The good news is that is true, absolutely true. But there's actually an additional way to interpret this passage. Because help in time of need is actually most likely interpreted well-timed help. Or opportune help. And that makes this idea explode for me because it means that not only can I come to God for grace 
when I need it. What this assures me is that God's grace is going to find me when I need it most. Not a second too early, not a second too late. Well-timed help, well-timed grace. God's grace and God's deliverance appears precisely when we need it most. And what we see here is that Jesus wasn't bringing temporary relief to the nation of Israel. This is what they're asking for. That's not why he's there. He was in Jerusalem to bring freedom and redemption for the nations. In fact, in verse 25, Jesus begins to mention the hope of eternal life, which is, by the way, so far off everyone's radar at this moment. They're thinking about imminent freedom right now, and God starts talking about, or Christ starts talking about eternity. What does this mean? What it means is that while we're always looking for that immediate answer, God is always working toward our eternal good. God is always doing something more eternal than we could ever imagine. Amen? Let's look finally at the way of Jesus. Expectations regarding the way of Jesus. Now, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the people are declaring him king of Israel. There is no subtlety about what they are expecting of Jesus at this moment. They expect that this is the king. Now, out of curiosity, where do you expect, or where do you think that they expect this, this king to be headed right now? The palace? The throne? Some place of political prominence, of course. He's the king. The people are anticipating him going to the place of the throne and liberating Israel from their Roman occupation and oppression and establishing Israel as an independent nation once again. To the masses, this was going to be the way to freedom. This was going to be the answer to their prayers. The idea was that all our problems go away. All our problems are solved if we get the right guy on the throne. Sound familiar? All our problems go away if we get the right people on Capitol Hill. All our problems go away if we get that one seat in the Supreme Court. All our problems go away if we elect this president or this local authority. Then things will be great. Then our nation will be what it needs to be. The people of God. So the good news is, we're not alone in the silliness, by the way. We're not a historic anomaly. Seems to be a trapping for many generations before us. The people of God can become so politically focused that they miss the movement of Jesus and the scope of God's redemption. See, we often expect God to work through power. We ex expect God to work through places of position, the sway of the majority. And yet everything about Jesus seems to be moving in the opposite direction. Almost immediately we're confronted with the truth that Jesus is not making his way towards the palace. Jesus is making his way toward a hill called Calvary. And he's going to reach its peak on Friday. 
And there he will be crowned, but with thorns. And there he will be exalted and lifted up, but not on a royal throne, but a Roman cross. You see, the path now lined with palms is not a victory march. It is now the first leg of what is called the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. Now think about this. Jesus could have done everything they expected. Jesus could have taken his cues from what the crowds wanted and said, all right. He could have leveraged his influence and power for a political revolution. He's Jesus Christ, for goodness sake. He could have called down legions of angels as the big guns. He could have done a number of things. But think about this. If Jesus gave in to their expectations, then what would that accomplish in the long run? If Jesus came into town and said, you're right, okay, I'm on. They'd probably be free for, look at Israel's history, by the way. They'd probably be free for one generation, two generations, a hundred years, if they're lucky. But what would this mean for their eternity? What would this mean for our eternity? What would this mean for our sin? What would this mean for our brokenness and shame? How would this deliver us from death and judgment? If Jesus just said yes to everyone's expectations, what would that mean for us? See, this king appeared in Jerusalem. And when he did, it was, it was to deliver us from a, a much fiercer enemy than Caesar or Herod or or Rome, or anyone like that. The good news of Jesus is that he came to deliver us from our true enemies. What's Jesus coming into Jerusalem for? He is there to deliver us from Satan, who is dead set on our destruction. And that Sunday, Jesus comes into Jerusalem to deliver us from our sin that has enslaved us and separated us from God. And that Sunday, he's coming into Jerusalem to deliver us from death that will come knocking on every single one of our doors sooner than later. But this kind of deliverance would require an entirely different way. It would be triumph through weakness. It would be victory through what looks like absolute defeat. What you're going to discover this Friday at 6 o'clock as you gather for your Good Friday service is that Jesus would conquer through bloodshed. But it wasn't going to be the blood of a Roman army, but his own blood on a Roman cross. The blood of a ransom. He would conquer as we too now conquer, the Revelations tells us, through the blood of the Lamb. The irony of this all was that their grand vision of what Jesus would do for them, it wasn't too big. If you're thinking that their vision for Jesus was too big, and now Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't know why I imagine Jesus saying that. But If you think that their vision of Jesus was too big, it's not. Their vision was too small. And this is always going to be the case where 
for every single one of us. Our expectations of God are never too great. We are never running the risk of expecting too much from God. You can never exaggerate God's possibilities in our lives. Even when our expectations appear to be more powerful and more grand, hear me. Jesus is always, and I mean always, doing something better and bigger and more eternal than we could ever, ever imagine. God himself, through the prophet Isaiah, would say this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Higher, better, bigger, more eternal, always. What the Palm Sunday narrative stresses is that the way of Jesus is going to be hard to discern. We even see this like laid out for us in the passage. Even Jesus' original tight-knit group of disciples that spent three years of like intimate time with Jesus do not understand what is going on in this moment. They are confused like everyone else. And I would say that this continues to this day. A few years ago, on Palm Sunday, as leaders uh, in the Coptic Christian Church in Egypt were finishing singing the final words of the Hosanna, the words Hosanna were literally on their lips as a bomb was detonated, killing 28 believers in that service. Elsewhere in Alexandria, around the very same time, a bomb was detonated outside of St. Mark's Cathedral, killing 17. ISIS ended up claiming responsibility. And I remember seeing the pictures of this scene. They're the kind of pictures that you don't want to look at, but I felt like I had to force myself to look at, to remind myself of the world that we live in and the world that the kingdom of God is truly invading. As I looked at these pictures, there, was, there were pictures of blood and dust and rubble scattered everywhere. And as you zoomed in, you could see these little green palm branches. Palm branches now buried under dust and rubble and ashes and blood. And I thought to myself, and I think to myself still to this day, of all days, on a day that is marked by the triumph of Jesus Christ, yet it came with so much defeat. And we look at these tragedies, we look at these losses, and we look at the way that the world is right now, we think about conflict in Eastern Europe and elsewhere, we look at our own lives, and we look at brokenness and hurt and strife and shame, and all these different things. And it's hard to understand. But there is hope in this passage. For the person that finds it hard to discern the way of Jesus, there is hope. And it's found in verse 16. It says, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. 
Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Only after Jesus was glorified. And what I think that this means is that only eyes that have been opened up by the resurrection of Jesus Christ can begin the process of discerning the way of Jesus Christ. We, as 21st century Christians, have the joy and privilege of looking at Palm Sunday in reverse. As we gaze back at this historic day, we're looking through the empty tomb. We're looking through the ascension of Jesus Christ. We're looking through the gift and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But it is only through eyes opened by the resurrection that we can then see the way of Jesus, the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering that leads to glory. And while today we may not be able to make perfect sense of pain and hurts and tragedy and loss and disappointment, we are given the greatest clarity that we could ever receive, the greatest hope that we could ever be given, and it's Jesus has risen from the grave. And what Jesus came into Jerusalem this Sunday to accomplish, he fulfilled. And at that cross, he declared with ultimate conviction that resounds through the centuries, it is finished. And this king truly did conquer over death, Satan, hell, and evil. And now this king, as we're going to sing in a little bit, is on the move. And this king is renewing all things. And this is the king that is bringing beauty out of ashes. On Palm Sunday, Jesus came gentle and lowly on a donkey. But as you know, when Christ reappears, it's going to be on a great horse of victory. In his first approach, Jesus came to be judged and condemned in our place. But in his second approach, he's coming to judge the nations. He's coming to destroy all evil and injustice. He's coming to establish his never-ending peace. Amen? Now, as the other gospel writers record, the crowds were spreading their branches on the road. Think about that, the symbol of their great dreams of all that Jesus would do. They were placing those expectations before him as the hooves of a donkey, a donkey's colt, trampled them underfoot. In one hand, or in one moment, they're being waved in hand, in another, they are pressed into the mud. I guess you could say that Holy Week is where dreams come to die. Where we come to lose our lives so that we may keep them in eternity. C.S. Lewis once said that nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. There is no hope of resurrection without the reality of death. Jesus himself said in verse 24, very truly I say to you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and what? Dies. It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, 
it produces many seeds. The seed of resurrection. So today, through praise and prayer, we wave the palm branches of expectancy. We bring Jesus our dreams. We bring Jesus our hopes and all of our desires, the deepest desires of our hearts. And this is a good thing. We offer them to the Lord. But like the crowds, we must also lay them down at the feet of Jesus to be reduced to dust and ashes Believing that what he raises in us and that what he brings to life in us will always far outshine anything that we could have ever expected. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do uh, this morning. I'm going to ask you to consider the following questions. What are the ways that I have been expecting Jesus to work? How have I been expecting him to appear What's the time frame that I've been expecting Jesus to fit within? What are the ways that my expectations have now been placed on others? God-like expectations on friends or a spouse or maybe even your church. And finally, what dreams and hopes need to be placed into the ground in order for them to be raised new through Jesus Christ. As the crowd laid down the branches, I want to invite you in just a moment to come forward to the carpets and to kneel before King Jesus and to lay those hopes and those dreams down at the altar of the Lord. And as you come forward, I want to invite you to say and pray in faith, Jesus, this is a hope that I hold very dearly. This is something I've been hanging on to for a really long time. But I trust you with it. I trust that you are gentle and lowly of heart. Jesus, you say if I hold on to my life, I'm going to lose it. But if I let it go, I'll keep it. Let my dreams pass through your refining fire. And I believe that you'll make something better. Jesus, I believe that you bring beauty out of ashes. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we confess that our dreams, hopes, desires, expectations die hard. In fact, Lord, we've been told from a very early age to protect those dreams and those hopes and those expectations at all cost. That perhaps the only thing that we can trust in this world are the dreams of our heart. But today we want to, to take a step of faith We want to acknowledge that as your word tells us, no, the desires of the heart are actually deceitful. We want to lay those things down at your feet, Lord. We want to offer you everything, even the, the things that are in the, our deepest person. And trust, Lord, that what you offer to us, your life, your freedom, your beauty, your righteousness, 
your eternity is better than anything that we could ever imagine. We let go of the small and the finite so that we can hang on and hold on to your infinite. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.